0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And on today's podcast, we are going to share with you a conversation that I had with Deborah Gonzalez. Deborah is a candidate For district attorney in the Western Judicial Circuit. This is the circuit that covers Athens, Clark, and Oconee counties. And we talked with Deborah first back in December about her campaign for district attorney, about the kinds of issues that she was running on, and the kinds of reforms to the criminal legal system that she would like to see if she was to get elected. Uh, But we've got a pretty significant update related to that race. In between when we talked and, and in recent news of the past week, Deborah had to actually sue the state to keep that election on the ballot in 2020 and not have it delayed for two years under a 2018 law uh, that dealt with how district attorneys are appointed and or elected. Uh, Deborah and her Other plaintiffs in the case, other voters in this district won that case earlier this week, and a judge has ordered that an election for the district attorney's seat in Athens and Oconee counties be put on the ballot on general election day uh, in November of 2020. So we talked to her about what happened in that case, about uh, what it means uh, in the context of this broader discussion around voting rights and attempts. By the state to limit access to the vote. And we also asked Deborah to reflect on recent demonstrations in cities across Georgia and across the country demanding an end to police brutality, police misconduct, demanding change on those issues, and how she sees her own role as a potential future district attorney in addressing those concerns. Uh, So without further ado, I will turn it over to my conversation with Deborah Gonzalez. All right, joining the podcast is Deborah Gonzalez, a candidate for district attorney in the Western Judicial Circuit. That's a circuit that covers Athens, Clark, and Oconee counties. Deborah, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So, Deborah, we last talked to you about your candidacy for DA back in the winter, but since then, you've got some pretty big updates, including that you had to sue the state to even keep this election on the ballot. For our listeners who may not have heard about this case, can you bring them up to speed? You know, you announced your candidacy for DA last year, and you tried to qualify during the regular qualifying period this spring. And then what happened?
1: Uh, well, basically, when I went down to qualify, I was told that I couldn't because the race was not on the ballot. And so what had happened is that when I had announced my candidacy, we still had an incumbent, Ken Molden who had been there for over 20 years. Um, After I had announced my candidacy, he came out and said that he would not run for re-election, this was after my announcement, but that he would fulfill his term and not leave an appointment for the governor. But in February, he sort of surprised everybody and decided to resign, effective the end of that month. And what that did was trigger a 2018 law that gave a, a timetable to the governor that if the governor appointed within six months of the general election, which would be in November, um, then the person he elected would not have to face uh, elections that year. And in fact, the election would be canceled and the next election for DA wouldn't happen until 2022. Um, So we really started a, a PR campaign, educating the voters what was happening, that they were going to lose their election We had a petition, we had lots of things going on to encourage the governor to do the right thing and not disenfranchise 150,000 voters um, here in this circuit, and to appoint a DA before the May 3rd deadline. Um, He did not, even though he had a short list of five as of the end of the um, month of February, but he did not appoint, which meant that then everybody lost their election, Uh, I decided then with another four other plaintiffs, all voters in Athens and Oconee counties, to sue the governor and the secretary of state to say that this was a violation of the Georgia Constitution and therefore a violation of the 14th Amendment of the federal constitution. And so we filed a case in the federal court, Northern District in Atlanta. We were assigned Judge Mark Cohen Um, And we had been in the process in the last month, of filing, the complaint, the briefings, and we asked for a motion for preliminary injunction. And basically what we were asking the judge was to say that the law, the 2018 law is unconstitutional to enjoin it and to order the secretary of state to put the election back on the ballot this November, 2020. And last Thursday on July 2nd, um, that is in fact what Judge Cohen ordered and he made his decision and it got released. So as it stands right now, the secretary of state, Rafsenberger, has been ordered to put this election on um, the general election ballot for November 3rd as a special election and to set up a new qualifying period just for this special election. And this special election will then be for a term, a full term of four years, starting in January of 2021.
0: And can you tell us, is this ruling basically the end of the discussion? Do you know if the state will try to appeal and keep this election from happening? Or you know, is the judge's decision basically final? And do you think it carries weight not only in the District attorneys race in the Western Judicial Circuit in your race, but also in other DA seats around the state.
1: And so, you know, <laughs> it's like any anything related to politics, nothing is actually ever over per se. You know, even in legislature, we have resurrection bills or zombie bills. You think something's dead and it comes back later on. Yes, um, the governor and the secretary of state have a right to appeal the decision and try to stay the motion. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, they also lost another case. And there the secretary of state decided that they were not going to appeal. They would just do what they were ordered. And we're hoping that this has as much gravitas that they will not appeal. Um, When I speak to my lawyer, he's like, you know, before maybe a couple of weeks ago, we would have said 95 percent chance of appeal now we're looking at less than a 50% chance of an appeal because there's been so much uh, media and attention given to it. Um, and, you know, the judge's order is pretty solid um, and, and pretty straightforward. I think everybody who reads the order can see this judge, you know, on, on pretty solid legal ground in making his decision. So we'll see what Uh, the Secretary of State and the governor's office do, whether they appeal or not. As for its effect on other DA races, you know, our court system is based on this concept of precedent, meaning that once you have a decision, it can be used either to, to sort of as a comparative measure to say, hey, my case is the same as this other case, you ruled that way, so I should get that ruling as well or my case is different from this case, and therefore you shouldn't rule that way. It would be up to every single DA candidate who's affected in the same way that I am as to whether they want to go and make their own filing or even, you know, submit a letter from their attorney to the Secretary of State and say, look, Gonzalez v. Kemp came out this way. Let's not waste taxpayers' money on another case and just give us um, the the race, the way that the judge had ordered in the Gonzalez v. Kemp case, uh, but again, those are each individual DA candidate who would have to do that if they can't get it on the ballot.
0: So I read this order and I thought it was pretty clear cut too, and that made me curious about the about this 2018 law that set up this process. And I looked back at the legislative process. And I couldn't find any pushback against the constitutionality of this bill, either in committee when it was being debated or on the floor of the House or the Senate when it came up for a vote. I couldn't find any questioning at all regarding this bill. You were in the legislature at the time, and Mm -hmm. and you and a handful of mostly Democratic colleagues did vote against this bill. But do you remember any pushback or any indications that this law might have violated the state constitution when it was passed in 2018?
1: Yeah, so it was one of the reasons why we voted against it. And there was conversation, you know, not all conversations that happen about bills in the legislature actually appear in the hearings. There's a lot, you know, I always tell people when you go and you're in the gallery and you're watching people after morning orders, you'll see that everybody gets up out of their seats and they're talking and they're walking around and talking to other representatives. There are lots of conversations that happen about bills during those, um, those time periods. And in fact, if you go back to the hearing on this particular bill, you will notice that they took 90 seconds, literally 90 seconds of discussion. And that was it. This was passed along partisan lines. This was, you know, they just kept saying, oh, we're just going to do this. And they did it. And it was passed by partisan lines. So You know, these are some of those games that get played where you don't even have an opportunity to say this bill is bad law. It is unconstitutional. There's just no time for discussion. And that majority party was in control. And so they controlled whatever discussion was had. But look back at the video. There is video. 90 seconds is all they dedicated to this law.
0: So I've observed that you've really sought to raise awareness for this lawsuit and its outcome. You know, On Facebook Live, I was able to watch a couple of different videos, one following the ruling where you and the attorneys on the case break it down, and another mm-hmm. video that recapped the hearing that happened in late June – Typically, I would find it difficult to get information about these cases without actually having the court documents. Was this a conscious effort on your part to make the proceedings in this case more publicly accessible? And if so, what was kind of the thinking behind that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So all throughout my political career, as short or long (laughs) as it's been, I have been a big proponent of educating the public as to the processes in the political arena and now in the judicial arena um, and making things as transparent as possible for people. So we actually have a website, JusticeWarriorspack.com, and all of the court documents are there uh, from our lawyers, from the complaint to the motion for preliminary injunction to the response to that, um, to the videos that you were talking about, the recaps with the attorneys. Because so much about these systems are sort of hidden from the everyday person. They don't understand. I really wanted individuals to understand, you know, as we're in the middle of these protests, right, about the systematic racism in the criminal legal system, I wanted the public to understand the role of a DA, why it is so important, and to understand how constitutional rights. Have to sometimes be fought in the battleground of the courtroom. You know, for many people, I mean, you know, recently uh, the movie Just Mercy about Bryan Stevenson was streaming live and it's this big courtroom drama about, you know, a person who was incarcerated unfairly um, and him being able to get out of, of that incarceration And so a lot of times people don't see those behind the scenes, what's happening with the case. And so for us, it was really, really important that we made it as transparent and that people would have access to it and also access to the attorneys so that they could ask their questions. This, we looked at it as an opportunity to educate the public.
0: So you spoke to this a little bit, but I kind of want to draw it out a little bit more here. You know, over the last month or so, we've spent a lot of time on the show discussing the mechanics behind elections, the debacle that was the administration of the June 9th primaries, particularly in the metro Atlanta area, the challenges to voting practices during the 2018 elections, and a lawsuit brought by Fair Fight Action, Stacey Abrams Group, arguing that Georgia should be returned to preclearance under the Voting Rights Act for a A cascade of failures administering elections. Can you contextualize this case about this DA's race into these broader discussions in Georgia around voting rights? I mean, do you feel that this was another instance of voters having to push back against efforts by the state to limit people's right to vote?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, when I categorize my case, I usually say this is a case at the intersection of voter suppression and criminal justice reform. Um, because it's the ultimate form of voter suppression, right? Not only do I not allow you to vote, but I take away the election itself. And I just think it's another strategy being used to then have viewpoint discrimination and to stop certain progressive um, policies from taking place where it's so necessary. And, you know, it's really interesting to me when we look at criminal justice reform, but our, our prior governor, governor nathan deal this was his signature um you know cause celebre, if you want to say and this current governor governor kemp has said that this is not his priority at all and so we've seen you know a number of da races sort of being sidelined um because of this 2018 law and being able to sort of stop progressive and reform da candidates from getting up there and stop communities, the voters themselves who are asking for this kind of change from being able to then make their selection for DA. You know, we have a a sheriff candidate here, John Q. Williams, and he basically said elected officials should be elected. You know, it's in our constitution that the DA is to be elected and, and that's what it is. And if we cannot have these elections, then people are really disenfranchised. And so we've been really honored and pleased that Fair Fight Action has been helping us with this case um, monetarily, as well as moral support and helping us with communications, because they see how this case is, in fact, One of voter suppression beyond just one of trying to stop criminal justice reform in a community that has been clamoring for it for years.
0: So, could we switch gears a little bit and talk about your campaign now that it's actually going to happen? In recent weeks, demonstrators have demanded action to end police brutality following the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and others. Can you tell us about your reflections about the role of district attorneys in this conversation? In what ways would you as a DA in the Western Judicial Circuit respond to calls from demonstrators to end police brutality?
1: Well, thank you for that question, because I think it's so important. And, you know, when we look at the Amon Arbery case, when we look at the George Floyd case, one thing keeps coming up in these news reports is the lack of action taken by district attorneys who were in charge of those judicial circuits. And basically that they did not um, prosecute the individuals who were responsible for those particular murders. And you know, when these protests started happening here in Athens, um, Georgia, we had one scenario where our local police department actually tear gassed some very peaceful protesters. And that sent off shockwaves in this community. This is not what Athens is known for. We've had protests on everything for decades, you know, and so to have something like that happen. And within four days of that happening, I was able to organize and train over 80 Uh, Legal observers, we had a team of 72 legal observers now that are creating infrastructure to be there to hold the police accountable to protect protesters because it is very important, you know, as, as a DA, you are the ones who are asked to hold police and law enforcement accountable. You are the ones who will actually prosecute them um, and so it's very important to understand that role of oversight that a DA has because their goal, one of their goals and one of their priorities is community safety. And that includes keeping the community safe from individuals who have authority, who are abusing that authority and discriminating Um, with that authority, especially against oppressed black and brown people. Um, And so I see my role very clearly in that scenario as to what we need to do. And, you know, even and I'll extend that a little bit. We've had in this legislative session this incredible conversation about the hate crimes bill. And you want to talk about how games are played. We had a nice, clean bill. It didn't go as far as we wanted it, but it was clean passed by the House in 2019, languished in the Senate for over a year. And then all of a sudden, the Senate picks it up when they go back in in June and adds, you know, this language to protect law enforcement, to make them a protected class and sort of you know, slap the face of all of these protesters and every African-American for what they've been going through. Being a police officer, you're not born with that. You choose. That is an occupation. That is not an inalienable trait um, that needs to be protected. And so they played this game. They put this poison pill in it. They finally took it out to pass a clean hate crimes bill, but they also passed basically HB 838, which was the police uh, bill of Rights uh, bill. And so, you know, talk about playing games and, and getting, you know, both sides. So this HB 838 is really sort of taking any teeth away from the hate crimes bill. But I take part in the um, athens Clark County Police Citizens Academy to learn about the way that our police department works. And we had the acting DA on a couple of weeks ago And he was asked by one of the participants in that academy, you know, what are your thoughts on the hate crimes bill? And his response was, well, I haven't had a chance to read it. You know, and and when you think about that, this is the person who's acting as DA right now. And he hasn't had a chance to read the hate crimes bill. He hasn't had the chance to form an opinion about what's happening in the community against black and brown people and police brutality and, and abuse um, that shows a real disconnect with the community. It almost shows, uh, you know, a disinterest. He's not, doesn't feel he's accountable to anybody, so doesn't feel that he has to um, learn about what the community is really concerned about. And so, I will be a DA who will have the community at the forefront, who will have these open dialogues and communication, and will be you know, aware and on top of these things that are happening, because that's the only way that we can get true community safety, is understanding the needs and what's happening in the community itself.
0: So you talked a little bit about the oversight of police officers, of accountability. Part of this discussion also seems to be focused on the way in which the law is applied. And for people who maybe less familiar or still kind of learning about the authorities that a DA has or the tools that a DA has at their disposal. Um, What tools would you use as a district attorney to make the application of the law, whether it's the treatment of defendants or anything related to the discretion a prosecutor has, what tools would you use to make the application of the law more equitable?
1: Yeah, well, one of the first things that we will do is review all of the policies and procedures that are in that office currently. there is a a wonderful blueprint called uh, let me see if I get it right now um twenty 21- one strategies for the 21st century prosecutor. And it really goes in length about strategies on data collection, how you use data, how you change the culture in the DA's office, because the bottom line to anything that we would want to do are the people themselves in that DA office. Um, And so that includes things like how do we evaluate the performance of prosecuting attorneys, if they are only evaluated on how many convictions they get, and how many people they put in jail, well, then we're going to continue to have the same culture of mass incarceration that we've had all of these decades. But if instead, we are looking at how we actually reduce the trauma and the violence that's happening in our communities, how are we um, diverting people from jail into accountability courts and accountability programs? How are we not uh, endlessly losing generations of youth in the juvenile justice system and ending the school to prison pipeline, but seeing how many of them are able to get into these other programs and graduate high school and graduate college and get a vocational Uh, job, if that's um, the direction that they want to take. So we have to change the measurements that we're actually using to evaluate individuals. We have to look at getting, you know, and all of this costs money, right? So one of the things that I have promised is I want to bring in a full-time grant writer that will help us look at best practices and things that are happening in other communities and be able to apply for and get those resources here in Athens and Oconee so that we can put some of these um, processes in place to help our communities. But also working with our victim advocates and giving them the true social worker tools that they need so that they don't feel that they are only pushing paper around, but that they really are giving services to the victims and and what they need and that it's just not a, a referral and a telephone number here, call this place and then that's it. But, you know, we have incredible resources here in Athens with the University of Georgia, the School of Social Work. They've been doing some help in the probation Department, we can't see why they can't help us also in the DA's uh, office with our victim advocates unit. And so there are different things that we can put in place that can really help make this better.
0: I think that that principles for a twenty first century prosecutor document. If if you and I are thinking (laughs) of the same thing, that document written by Emily Bazelon, is that right? That's right. right. Yeah, we'll put a link to that. It's fair
1: and just prosecution.
0: Yeah, well um we'll put a link to that in show notes. I think that that's something that I've taken a look at too that's really informed kind of my view of of the way in which progressive prosecutors are approaching these issues. Um I think that a lot of these reforms are going to kind of be judged by whether or not they prevent particularly the ones related to officer misconduct, whether they prevent officer use of force and whether when there is use of force there's also consistent accountability And Mm -hmm. with that in mind, the AJC reported on increased gun violence in Atlanta over the weekend, including the shooting death of an eight-year-old, Sequoia Turner. And based on interviews with residents and the president of the local police union, that reporting reflects this sense that police in Atlanta have pulled back following the scrutiny of officer use of force and the decision by Atlanta District Attorney Paul Howard to charge the officer who killed Rayshard Brooks. You, as a potential district attorney, would step into, into the middle of this relationship in Athens uh, between a public who is demanding justice and officers who, at best, appear skeptical of reforms. What do you make of this sense that police are pulling back in response to criticism? Do you think that that's just political posturing or if that's a serious issue? And if it is a serious issue, how do you approach managing that relationship?
1: Okay, so I think it's a little bit of both. It is definitely political posturing, but I also think it is a very serious issue. And as you can see, it has led to the death of citizens and individuals in our community. And so, you know, one of the things is I have a, a relationship with Chief Spruel here in Athens. I look forward to forming a relationship with the new sheriff in Oconee when that person is put into office, because I believe in collaboration, I believe in that we need to work together and build up some trust between these different officers because at the end of the day, we all have the same goal and that is to keep the community safe, hold people accountable who need to be held accountable, but keep the community safe. But you know, these old standards of how that was done Are basically old, they're old, they're outdated, they're ineffective, and we need to look at new ways. And one of the ways of doing that is by looking at the way that these offices work together. But make no mistake that officers who do things of abuse of power will be held accountable, just like we want any other person who does something wrong held accountable for the police officers and the union to take the stance, well, then we're just gonna back off. Then it was never about the community to begin with. It was about their own power and having basically no oversight to their control and no limits to their control if they care about the community and the community's safety, then they will do the job that they were supposed to do without abusing that power, which is what they should have done in the very, very beginning. But this idea of militarization of the police, you know, for the first time we saw on June 6th in Athens, we had the National Guard, we had uh, the State Patrol, we had the Athens Police Department, we had wildlife services, um, you know, their police officers, we had like six, seven different agencies, we had helicopters, we had drones, we had all this. What? what is happening in our community, but it is an overkill. And Athens is not Detroit. Athens is not Atlanta. Athens is not New York city. And I think we have to look at that every town is individual and has different people who are in that town, different cultures that need to be looked at when we are considering true community safety. Um, And so the way that I look at it is that, you know, Whoever does something that hurts another individual in this community, that they need to be held accountable. And if that is a police officer, then that's what we have to do. But we also have to look at the systemic racism in law enforcement. We just can't say it's a few bad apples. We cannot train this out of a culture. We have to have consequences to bad acts. Um, and unacceptable acts. And if things are done, you, you know, you hear these trainings about implicit bias. Well, you know, we've been training now for years on implicit bias, and it's still going on. Why? Because there are no consequences when it happens. And so what we're seeing now with the police department sort of uh, stepping back or even vocally saying, you know, we're not going to be there or this fear mongering of if you call 911, nobody's going to answer or if you're raped, we're not going to go and help you. Um, that's not what you were sworn to do. You were sworn to help protect and keep people safe. And so you're going against the own your own oath to do that.
0: So we've talked through a couple of challenging issues today. Uh, Before we go, is there anything else you'd like to say about the ruling or about your campaign as it moves forward?
1: Yeah, thank you. So, you know, what I tell people is that this win... In the court, this the granting of the motion is a win for over 150,000 voters in Athens and Oconee counties. It's not that Deborah now becomes D.A. I still have a campaign to run and nothing is guaranteed right in these political times. Uh, But to have the opportunity to run right to me is, is a big step forward and to have people the opportunity to make their own selection that they get to elect who this elected official should be. And so what I ask people now that we have this, this ruling is get involved with your candidates. You know, you can all uh, find my information, www.debra4da.com or DG, the number 4DA on Facebook. Get involved because this doesn't end with just the ruling, right? We still have an election in November. Register to vote and then make a plan and go vote. It is so, so important this year that people get out and vote. And it makes a difference. It absolutely makes a difference. We had a major, a mayor's race in Oconee that was won by just two votes, two votes. So it makes a big difference that people get out and vote. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, Deborah Gonzalez is a candidate for district attorney in the Western Judicial Circuit. Deborah, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.